The following message features Mike Reeves and was recorded at the first main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God West 2014 conference. It's entitled, Why the Trinity is So Delightful and Why it Matters. Mike Reeves is theologian at large at Wales Evangelical School of Theology. Oh, friends, it is, it is wonderful to be here. I find it one of the most encouraging things before any conference ever starts that here I am I've I've left my family I've left my church the other side of the world and I come here and I find family I find real brothers and sisters and it's not simply that we happen to believe the same things we have the very same spirit within us and that is such an encouragement to me as I cross the world. Here we are. I'm part of the family of God and we'll be with each other forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great Father, you, you have a very, very unworthy and very weak servant here. So weak. You have promised to make your strength perfect in weakness. And I'm depending on that promise now. Oh, great Father, shine forth. Make your face shine upon us. Clean our minds. And by your life-creating power through the Spirit... Alter, turn, melt our hearts that we might desire you, love you more. And I pray this for my brothers and sisters that they might say that they have nothing in heaven or earth beside you. And may they then know a freedom in you because they love you more than they love sin. That their delight in you makes the world wonder and listen. And may lives be changed through this. May your glory shine out through this week. Do that tonight, we pray, great Father, through your word. Do darkness-defeating work in our hearts for our joy and for your wonderful glory. In Jesus' sweet name we pray. Amen. I am absolutely thrilled and bluntly amazed at the theme of this conference. Triune. I mean, it's not exactly by popular demand, is it? <laughs> Triune, the Trinity. I, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm thrilled it's happening, but it is slightly strange. Triune. The Trinity, because I think most Christians would prefer to avoid talking about the Trinity. That seems to be how it is for a lot of Christians. Avoid it. But, and to an extent, I sort of understand what that's like, because many Christians feel, look, you know, there's the God I know and love, and that's enough for me, Right? It's, it's way over there in those ivy-covered seminaries. It's where those pasty-faced, socially disastrous theologians are. They're the ones who like to talk about Trinity. 
It's the sort of thing that keeps them amused while we live life. Right? How can three be one? It's about as useful a question as how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, isn't it? Irrelevant mathematical gibberish, isn't it? I think deep within the Christian psyche today is the idea that the Trinity is an awkward and odd irrelevance. It's a wart on our knowledge of God. And so, when it comes to sharing our faith, we speak of God's offer of salvation. We speak of God's wonderful offer of grace. But we try actively not to let on that the God we're speaking of is a trinity. And so I hear Christians, we we wax lyrical about the beauty of the gospel, but not so much about the beauty of the God whose gospel it is. I want to suggest it's time for us to stand up and say no to such It's time for us to be proud of who our God is, not shy. For us to be clear that our beautiful gospel could never come from a God who is any less than the very perfection and essence of beauty. And that is the triune God. And only then will we truly enjoy what sets the living God apart from all the idols of human imagination. Only then, friends. And this, you know, is the very nature of the eternal life for which we've been saved. In John 17, the night before he's crucified, Jesus prayed to his father and said, this is eternal life. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Friends, that is life, knowing this God, pressing in to know the Trinity. Psalm 27, David says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing will I seek after, that I may... Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to seek after him in his temple. David clearly was not afraid that if he spent too long gazing upon the Lord, he might at some point come across something awkward, something distasteful, something irrelevant. Oh no, Trinity! No, David saw the whole Bible witnesses to this, that through and through the Lord is so beautiful, so desirable. David says he would spend all his days enjoying, probing ever deeper into the utter loveliness of God. Come to Psalm 84 to see some more of this. Psalm 84. This is what we're doing when we look into the Trinity. 
And just as you turn there, can I say, friends, never will you delight in God deeply until you press in to know the triunity of God. Your knowledge of God will be shallow. It will not sustain you. And I dare say it'll be very quick to veer into idolatry unless you know the triunity of God. This is my aim tonight. Pressing in to know God as Father, Son, and Spirit. I want you to echo these words. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, all my desires, my affections, my flesh sing for joy to the living God. (laughs) And look at this. Even the sparrow finds a home. (laughs) The swallow finds a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. See, clearly... Even birds seem to flock to the temple in Jerusalem because the Lord who sat there, his presence there in the Holy of Holies was so attractive, so beautiful. Even the animals seemed to see it, even if blind men didn't. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Verse 10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That is what you sense when you know God better. You become persuaded that a day in his courts is better than a thousand spent seeking a name for yourself, spent seeking your pleasure in lust, in self-righteous religiosity or anywhere else, a day in his courts is better. Oh Lord, help everyone here to see that more clearly tonight. Where should we start? Where should we start? Now this, I think, is exactly where, the very point, where so many go wrong. Where to start? In thinking about the Trinity. See, I think <clears throat> Christians very often think, okay, let's think about the Trinity. And very quickly, all these weird illustrations come into their mind. Yeah? So they're thinking, okay, Trinity, so God's like this leaf with three bits sticking out. Hmm. God is like an egg. The shell, the yolk, the white, and yet it's all one egg. Our God's a great big egg. Our God, like the three states of H2O. Sometimes he's watery, sometimes he's icy, sometimes he's steamy. And it leaves you thinking, well, this God is very bizarre. Well, no wonder we should just leave it all to those theologians. What possible relevance has that got? No, friends, Christians believe in the Trinity not because they sense God's similarity to eggs 
or H2O. Do you know why? Because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Come with me to John 20, verse 31. Here, John 20, verse 31. John tells us that the very reason he wrote his gospel was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you see it? John's most basic call simply to believe in Jesus is a call to a Trinitarian faith. For look, Jesus is described as the Son of God. That's the God he reveals. God is his Father. And he is called the Christ, meaning the Anointed One. Christ in Hebrew, Messiah in Greek. Uh, sorry, got that the wrong way around. Forgive me, jet lag. Christ in Greek, he... I need to speak properly. <laughs> anointed one in Greek is Christ. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. It means anointed one here. He is the one anointed with the Spirit. When you start with the Jesus of the Bible, it is a triune God that you get. Or if you were to look at John 17, again, that extraordinary prayer Jesus prays the night before he's crucified for you. And he says in verse 24, the son prays to the father and he says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. That, friends, is the God we're talking about. A God who is a perfect, perfect Father, eternally loving, delighting in His most perfect Son. So the Son of God reveals His God is His Father. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a father? Names mean something in the Bible. We often skip over this, but he's called father because he is a father. And what's a father? A father is someone who gives out life, who loves, who, who begets children. Right? You can't be a father unless you give out life. Now, if before all things, before anything else, eternally God is a father... That's who he is. That means God must be eternally a life-giving, outgoing, overflowing God. Eternally. It's not that he creates life or, or, or gives life, that is. It's not that he gives life for the first time in creation. For eternity, this God has been a life-giving God. This is something that's unpacked for us in 1 John 4. Please turn to this. 1 John 4. This eternal life-giving nature of God. 
the, the fatherliness of God. Now, 1 John 4, let's just dive straight in at verse 7. I think these are just extraordinary words. Beloved, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. You can say you believe what you like. If you do not love, you cannot know this God. For he is love in such a profound and potent way. You cannot know him without becoming like him. Uh, Do you know someone in your church? I'm thinking particularly of a senior saint in your church who's been walking with Christ for decades, perhaps. And they just seem to radiate with the love and generosity and joy of Christ. Do you know someone like that? I do hope you do. Now, imagine... That senior saint invites you around for Sunday lunch after your Sunday morning service. And you go around for lunch. How do you behave when you're like them, when you're with them? When you're with this lovely senior saint, how do you behave in their presence? You're kind of nicer, aren't you? Right? You don't backstab in their presence. You don't say mean things about other people in their presence. You'll do it later, but when you're with them... You just seem more loving, more kind, and more generous, right? It wears off after a bit. They are very small, finite pictures reflecting what this God is like. You cannot know him or be in his presence without starting to become like him. And he is love. John can write, God is love. For this God, friends, would not be who he is if he did not love. See, if the father did not have a son to whom he gave his life and love, well, he would not be a father, right? Yeah, if he didn't have a son he gave life to, he loved, well, he wouldn't be a father. Without that son. To be who he is then, this God must give out life and love. To be the father then means to love. To give out life to beget the son. Some old theologians have liked to compare the father to a fountain of love. And, and Jesus is, is like the stream flowing from the Father or the rays from the radiant sun of the Father's love. And just as a fountain cannot be a fountain if it doesn't pour out water, so the Father cannot be a Father unless he gives out life to his Son. Meaning, we begin to see why the Trinity is such good news. God is love because God is a trinity. 
because for eternity this God has been giving out, bursting out with uncontainable love, delight for his son. Now you get a picture of this in the baptism of Jesus. And friends, if you want an illustration to talk to your kids about the Trinity, can I suggest the baptism of Jesus, not eggs? Okay? In the baptism of Jesus, what do we see? We see there the sun in the waters of the Jordan. The heavens are ripped open. And the father declares his great love for his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am so pleased. And he says that as the spirit rests on the son. That is what God is like. The father pours out his love on his son through the spirit, makes his love known to the son. And that work of the spirit on the son brings the son to call back, Abba, Father. There's this lovely moment in Luke 10 where we read, Jesus, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, called forth, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. As the Spirit has made the love of the Father known to him, made him know who the Father is, that the Spirit makes this cry echo up in him. He answers the Father's love and cries, Abba. And we'll see tomorrow how that is what we're caught up into, that life. For when the same spirit that rests on Jesus rests on us, those words of the Father apply to us. I'm so worthless, but when the spirit has rested on me and made me born again, those words apply to me. This is my beloved son in whom I'm so pleased. And the Spirit causes me to cry back, Oh, Abba. Now, I hope you see that when you start with Jesus, you see that the triune God is anything but a philosophical headache. There is so much to press into explore, but this is not problematic. Here is a God who is love. Here is a God who's a father, loving, giving life to his son in the sweet fellowship of the spirit. That's what we're talking about. This is the beautiful God we've been brought to know. This is the life we've been brought into. Here, friends, is an ecstatic God. A God who doesn't hoard his life. He's not a mean and miserly God. You see it in who he is. And in that definitive moment of self-revelation on the cross, he would prove it. Here is a God who gives his life away. The Father, eternally, has been giving his life and love to his Son. And his Son, so perfectly, reveals the heart of his Father in heaven. He goes out and gives his life to us. 
All of which is to say the very nature of the triune God is at complete odds with the nature of all the other gods of human religion and imagination. Utterly, utterly different. See, all the gods of human religion you'll find are needy. All of them require our service or worship. Just just think about it for a moment. Let's imagine a single person God. He's been sitting on his throne for eternity, for eternity, all alone. He's lonely, the poor thing. He's lonely. This solitary being all by himself for eternity. Lonely. He needs us. And so the glory of such gods, it's like a black hole sucking in, taking from us, only demanding. The triune God, this is great good news, friends, does not need us. Don't confuse that with love. Please don't confuse that. It means he's truly loving. He does not need us. He's not. The Father's never been lonely. For eternity, the Father's been perfectly satisfied in his beautiful Son. And just let me say on that, those times, you know, when you feel, I think I've seen everything there is to see in Jesus, and I'm beginning to get a bit bored of him. If you're really honest, I think you'll know what I'm talking about. There's times when you go, he's a son of God, he died for my sin, and I'm beginning to get a bit bored. Friends, that's simple blindness, because Jesus the Son, the God the Son, has satisfied the immeasurable mind and heart of the Father for eternity. He's more than sufficient for you. No. This God has life in himself. So much so, the Father, you see, is brimming over with it. His glory is inestimably good, self-giving. It's it's like it's shining out. Uh, The Father, as, as the sun goes out from the Father, the sun is described as being the bright radiance of his glory. For that is what this fatherly, life-giving God is like. Fruitful. Outgoing. He shines out with glory. Which is why, again and again, in Scripture you see the sort of words associated with the character, the nature, the glory of this God is like a light shining out. So, the glory of the Lord shone around those shepherds outside Bethlehem. Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem does not need the light of sun or moon for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. That's the character, the nature, the glory of this God Shining out 
pure, perfect, not a spot of darkness, shining out, giving out all the time. This God is an overflowing sun of life and love. Super sufficient. It's something C.S. Lewis captured in the Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you ever read them. Screwtape Letters, he imagines this correspondence between a senior demon and a junior demon. And he captures well the difference between the devil. I do think about the devil here. The devil is the definitive Single-person, solitary God. When people think, God, isn't he this sort of single-person, horrible dictator on a throne, just ordering us about with entirely mean and selfish reasons? I wonder who they're thinking of. And Lewis shows the difference between the devil and the living God of ecstatic, self-giving, overflowing love. Here's what the senior demon, Screwtape, writes. He says, One must face the fact that all the talk about God's love for men, his service being perfect freedom, is not, as we demons would gladly believe, mere propaganda. It is an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We demons want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and will be filled. That's idols. He is full and flows over. Do you see it? It means this God is the reason for grace. No grace, no grace without the triune God. What I want to do now, I want to get a little bit more clarity on why only the triune God is so beautifully glorious. And I want to do that by showing you a little comparison. I want to see the difference briefly to Allah, who is of the world religions, almost certainly the best known of these single-person gods. And I want you to see how different Allah is because he's not triune, okay? So I want you to see what difference being triune makes to the nature of God. And here will be a little warning for you as well. This is the sort of God you will default to if you are not explicitly Trinitarian. Now, while the pluralist might want to say, God of the Bible, God of the Quran, we're talking about the same sort of being, right? Same same God, different cultural clothing. Well, Allah is less keen on being blended. Now, the Lord God of Israel is very keen not to be blended with Baal, Molech, Dagon, and all that in the Old Testament. I'm hoping you kind of know that territory. 
But let me give you Allah's perspective. Here's from the Quran. You don't have the Quran read at Worship God that often, I don't think. (laughs) Say not, Trinity, desist, it will be better for you. For God is one God. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. Or even more explicitly, say, he, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. He begets not. He's not a father. Nor is he begotten. He's not a son. Allah is being as clear as he possibly can. He is not Father, Son, and Spirit. He's a different God. And so we can see his difference. He is one person, not three. That's quite a difference already. But it's not just different numbers we're talking about here. Here's what I really want you to see. That difference means that Allah has a completely different motivation and character. So, let's think about Allah. If he's truly God, let's just thought experiment for a moment. Imagine Allah is truly God. What's he really like? If you really were to get to know him properly. Now, they say that to get to know someone properly, you can't just know them in public. You need to go and see what they're like at home. Right? You don't really know what I'm like. You need to see how I am with my family on Saturday. Then you'll know what I'm like. Really. Come see me behind closed doors. Then you'll know what I'm like. So it is with the gods of human religions. What are they really like? Let's see them in private. So think about what was Allah like for all eternity. You know, I think... I would have no idea. You do know something, actually. He is God, and before he's created anything else, what's he like? Solitary, right? Before he's created anything else, he's all by himself, right? For eternity, Allah existed without anyone to love. That's a huge point to notice. Love for others clearly is not his heartbeat. He's managed to go for eternity without loving anyone. Now, there's actually a tension here in Islam because Allah is said to have 99 names which describe how he is in eternity. One of them is the loving. He's supposed to describe how he is in himself. And you think, how could that possibly be? Islamic scholars say, well, it's because he's looking forward to his creation and he's loving that. There's a problem still that for Allah to be who he is, the loving, he needs his creation to be who he is. Did you spot that? So Allah is dependent on his creation to be who he is, the loving. One of the cardinal beliefs of Islam is that Allah is dependent on nothing. It's just one of the ways, I'd love to talk to you about others, in which I think Islam is crying out to be Trinitarian so as to be coherent. 
does not make sense without being Trinitarian. But the implications, here's what I want you to see really, the implications for the character of Allah are concerning, to put it mildly. For not being essentially loving, the Quran says that Allah is the source of evil in just the same way as he is the source of all good. Meaning that while he can be described as the compassionate, the merciful, he has other names that describe who he is in the Quran. The Quran describes him as the proud, as the destroyer, as the best of deceivers. And in some 20 passages in the Quran, Allah is said to deceive and pervert men's wills, leading them astray, most famously, leading the followers of Christ astray, believing that Christ died and rose again by substituting a lookalike on the cross. Allah's deception. Now, what do you think faith in God looks like with such a God? Understandably, it looks unsure and frightened. So even when Muhammad's successor, the enormously significant first caliph of Islam, Abu Bakr, he was personally assured by Muhammad himself of paradise. You think, oh, that's pretty good. I, I, I get a feel, it must, it must, it's sort of the Islamic equivalent of being clement in Philippians 4. I've always thought clement had a good deal. Do you remember in Philippians 4, I think verse 3, Paul writes, Clement and the other fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. You think, Clement's never going to have assurance problems, is he? <laughs> How did it get worse for Abu Bakr? Personally assured by Muhammad himself of paradise, he said this. By Allah, I would not rest assured and feel safe from the deception of Allah, even if I had one foot in paradise. the words of the first caliph of Islam. He was absolutely right. He knew Allah well. Allah could not, cannot be trusted. I'm not being pejorative. Please understand me. I'm describing how the Quran talks of his character. How entirely different the triune God is. Because unlike Allah, what has our God been doing in eternity? John 17, 24. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. For eternity this God has been loving. Pouring out his spirit on his beloved son. And so because our God is triune, and, and only because our God is triune, we can say this God is love. Therefore, he tells the truth. Therefore, he's not a great deceiver. He is kind. This overflowing God, he is the sort of God who would show grace. All of that must slip away if we are not deliberately Trinitarian. So friends, can I make a little plea here in our worship 
please let us make it patently obvious for everyone that we do not worship just any God. We worship this God. Specifically, this, the triune God of Scripture. Because if we are not explicit and continually explicit, people will begin to assume subconsciously some other sort of God and probably slip towards the sort of thing we saw in Allah. No, through Jesus, we see the triune God. The only God who is love, who is overflowing, who is so sufficient. The God beyond the tiresome idols of human imagination. I want to show you one more vista, if I can, on the beauty of the triune God. And it's an appropriate one. I want to talk about music for a moment. Because the triune God is the rationale for music. The Trinity is why music. And I want to show you this because I would like musicians particularly, every time you know you're reveling in the very beauty of the music itself, not just the words, the actual music, every time you're reveling and thinking, oh, that is just a beautiful melody there. I want you to be able to enjoy that melody and have the beauty of it not entice you away from God to worship the music itself, but to draw you towards God, to love him more as an echo of his beauty. So, listen to this. It's from the poet John Dryden. He wrote something called the Song for St. Cecilia's Day. Uh, St. Cecilia was supposed to be the patron saint of music. And hear how he describes the Trinity as being the logic for music here. Get this. He says, From harmony, from heavenly harmony, right? Father, Son, and Spirit in harmonious relations. From heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. When nature, underneath a heap of jarring atoms, lay and could not heave her head, the, listen to this, tuneful voice was heard on high. He's talking Genesis 1. And he's, he's saying the word, the word of God, when it goes out, would not be a dissonant cacophony. No. This beautiful Life-giving word goes out, arise ye more than dead. And then cold and hot and moist and dry in order to their stations leap and music's power obey. Isn't that strong? For how melodious the word is. From harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. From harmony to harmony. Through all the compass of the notes it ran in creation. The diapason, the octave, closing full on man. Now, that is a theme that many people have picked up 
C.S. Lewis has the Christ-like figure of Aslan sing Narnia into existence. J.R.R. Tolkien has a musical account of creation in his Silmarillion. And if you want to hear this at its best, listen to Handel's version of a song for St. Cecilia's Day. It's done beautifully. You have this musical void moment. Everything's silent. And suddenly, like light shining into the darkness, you hear from harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. Their point is that it is from the heavenly harmony of Father, Son, and Spirit that all created being and all created harmony comes. Do you find this? I find to find, to, to hear, you hear this a lot in Wales, to hear a tuneful harmony, I find can be one of the most intoxicatingly beautiful experiences on earth. To hear voices, instruments blending together can be so beautiful. No wonder, as in heaven, so on earth. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always been in a delicious harmony. And so they create a world in which harmonies, distinct beings, persons, or notes, working together in unity is beautiful to behold or hear. It mirrors somehow in our created world the very nature of God. The eternal harmony of Father, Son, and Spirit provides the logic for a world in which everything was created to exist in unity. Provides the logic for a world where it's good to have man and woman working together, distinct, different, in unity. Where it's good for different races to come together in harmony. These differences held together in unity, the the body having many different parts, it it speaks of who our God is. And such thoughts have inspired many a Christian musician. Johann Sebastian Bach, for instance, was a passionate believer that in music, the human musician could sound out somehow in a limited way the beauty of the divine musician and the great symphony that is creation. And, and Bach wanted to, to sound out the character of God and how he had structural reality with the, the minor and major keys, the, the shadows and the lights in the music, all reflecting something of the grand symphony of reality. Well, Bach's younger contemporary, the preacher Jonathan Edwards, if you to look through his works, you find one of his favorite words of all is harmony. He believed that the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit is the supreme harmony of all. That's his words. And he believed that when we sing together in harmony, as he often did with his large family, we do something that reflects God's own beauty. He said, the best, most beautiful, most perfect way we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other is by music. 
when I would form in my mind the idea of a society utterly happy, I think of them expressing their love, their joy and harmony by sweetly singing to each other. Friends, there is the deepest, most alluring beauty to be found in the heavenly harmony of the Trinity. Indeed, the triune being of God is the secret of this God's beauty. In the lively harmony of the three persons, the radiant love, the eternal love, the overflowing goodness of this God, there is a beauty entirely at odds with the self-serving monotony of single-person gods. Friends, if you have felt in any way awkward about the Trinity, it's because you're thinking about three-part leaves and eggs. No, the Trinity is the oxygen of Christian life and joy. Only because our God is eternally overflowing, loving, can we speak of grace. Only such a God would be so gracious. Our gospel is only good because it expresses what our triune God is like. Only such an ever-loving God would think of so sweet a salvation. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Cried Moses. None. None whatever. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Ever-loving Father, you reveal yourself in your Son to be so beautiful. Pure, perfect, ever-loving. Father, would you continually open all of our eyes to see more clearly who you are, that like the Son, we might find our delight in you. And seeing him more clearly, like you, we might find our delight in him. And so might we enter more deeply into your joy, your life. Please, my Father, would you bless my brothers and sisters with a deeper knowledge of you, a knowledge which transforms them to be like you. For your great and beautiful glory. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Mike Reeves entitled, Why the Trinity is So Delightful and Why It Matters. It was given at the first main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God West 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemen.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.